0: All right. Hey, happy Easter to you. Hope you're doing good. Take your uh, Bible, if you would, or your phone, or whatever it is, and go ahead and start turning to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. That's where it's it's, uh, going to be. But hope you've had a great Easter already. We certainly... Uh, certainly have, but uh, thrilled you're here. I don't know, uh, some of you come here every week, some of you are like, uh, you lost an argument with your spouse and this was the penalty. Whatever it is, thank you very, very uh, much for being here. Uh, We're one church with a bunch of rooms around Western North Carolina, and one of the cool things about Easter is new beginnings. And uh, today, for the first time, there is a Biltmore Church uh, extension uh, to the men and women. They're tuning in for the first time at the Buncombe County Detention Centers. So if you would just give them a welcome applause, very, very glad. God has opened that door and uh, actually start small groups there in May. So uh, continue to pray. Uh, God is a good God and God's grace is sufficient and you never can outrun the cross. So we are excited about what God is doing there. And man, if we ever needed some good news, all right, this is the year, correct? If we ever like, man, I need something good. I need some good news. This, I- this is the year. Uh, because there's very few of us in here that would say, you know what, the last year's been amazing, you know? It's just, let's rerun this again. Very few of us are like that. I've said that, you know, my observation has been if you went into the last 12 months unhealthy, man, this has just been unbelievably difficult the last 12 months. Even if you went into the last 12 months healthy and happy and all of that stuff, it has still been stressful. It's been stressful, and for many people, you know, maritally, uh, financially, uh, relationally, Uh, There's so many different things that have been going on. And so you've been battling everything from uh, hopelessness uh, to uh, desperation. Uh, but the great news that we get to celebrate today is you know what two thousand years ago, there was a group of men, twelve of them, and that by, you know, they were desperate, uh, they had lost hope, uh, they were discouraged, and yet they ended up they were the catalyst for what changed the world through them is what we celebrate today all right and that is an empty tomb, so no matter where you uh, come from, no matter how far you 've been uh, away from the Lord, and no matter how long you 've been gone, thrilled uh, thrilled, thrilled, thrilled that you are here probably the only thing that everybody agrees on in the last 12 months uh, is that uh, something's gone wrong with the human condition. Nobody's arguing by looking out the window, even before this 12 months and saying, you know what, boom, that is is exactly how things were designed to work. All right, everybody agrees something has gone wrong. Fox News agrees with that. Uh, CNN agrees with that. Uh, the uh, Christian agrees with that, the atheist agrees with that, the Muslim agrees with that, the Buddhist agrees with that. They all are like, you know what, something something has gone wrong. Uh, if you go into the bookstore, biggest section of the bookstore, self help section, I gotta have some books, I gotta have something to tell me, you know what, there is a problem and I've got to do it. And what I wanna just submit to you is that the good news of the gospel is unique in, in the way that it responds to this that everybody agrees on, but the gospel is unique in the way that it addresses this problem. Every other worldview, every other world religion basically says, you know what, to fix this human condition, I've got to go do something. Now that do something varies depending on which viewpoints you have. Either I've got to align my chakra or I've got to obey the commandments or I've got to follow the five pillars or whatever it is. But the gospel says, you know what? God stepped out of heaven on a rescue mission for you. And it's not about what you can do. It's about what he has done. And so what we celebrate today, just so you're clear, um, uh, just this is our belief as a church. All right, today we are not celebrating some uh, figment of our imagination. We are not celebrating some esoteric, you know what? Jesus is raised in our hearts. That's not what we're celebrating. The cornerstone of Christianity and the foundation of what we believe is that a man who had been confirmed dead got up out of the grave by his own power, walked around, showed himself to over 500 people over 40 days in the town in which he was killed and then ascended back into heaven. It would be the same as if uh, a friend of yours dies. You have his funeral on a Friday. You go to the graveside. You see him lowered down into the dirt. You go home Sunday, you go to Publix to get some groceries, and when you are checking out the person whose funeral you were at on Friday, taps you on the shoulder and says, what's up, Scooter? That is what we are talking about. And so I know not everybody's there. I know uh, we have a wide, wide range of people all over the map spiritually today, and the text today actually speaks to all of us. If you're a Christian and this is like the Super Bowl for you, man, you'll find some great meat here. If you're a doubter, you're kind of a skeptic, you're like, I'm not really sure about this whole thing. I saw this special on the news this week on the History Channel and I, we've got some great things for you. And if you're somewhere in between, uh, there's some great news uh, for you as well. And so uh, believe it or not, the text that we're gonna look at is the most jacked up church in the whole New Testament. There is not a more dysfunctional church than the church at Corinth. We won't go through that, but if you were at the first 14 chapters, uh, you would see dysfunctional families, messed up marriages, doctrinal confusion, ethnic and racial strife, political tensions. All of that is in the church at Corinth. And yet the apostle Paul who wrote the letter to them uh, starts it off and says this in the 15th chapter. Now I would remind you brothers, I would remind you brothers of the gospel that I preach to you. I know some of you are already like, hey, wait a minute, wait. These are already believers. What is he doing preaching the gospel to them? They've already believed, we're gonna get to that. Which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And then he says, unless you believed in vain unless you believed with no effect, unless you believed with emptiness, unless there was absolutely no change at all. But he starts off saying, I'm reminding you brothers and sisters of the gospel. So here's my first, got two points. The first one's gonna take the bulk of the message. And that is, remember the gospel. Now I gotta confess to you, I've confessed to our church for probably the first 15 years of my ministry After seven years of theological education, I still saw the gospel as the baby food of the Christian life, as the Gerbers of the Christian life. This is the way you start the Christian life and then you move on to something else. Three ways to improve your marriage, four ways to be a better parent, six ways to be a better employer, whatever it is. After all of that, I still missed it. And what Paul does is he reminds Christians of the gospel. And so, loved one, what that means is, is that the Christian in this room who has been a Christian for 20 years, you still need to be reminded of the gospel just as much as the person without Christ needs to hear it. And it's not just in this one place. The apostle Paul often does that in all the different letters he wrote to the church at Philippi, mature church, not jacked up like this church, a mature church. He says, you know what? My own personal testimony is I had all this religious trappings. I had all this, these verses memorized. And that is all, and he uses a word for dog poop. He basically says, all that is dog poop. Don't write me a letter. That actually is what it says. It says scubulon, which means dog poop, or probably cat poop. It's what he's saying. Basically, this is, this is what I would compare all my religiosity to when I compare it to the glory of the gospel. He tells the Galatians, another church, Tells them, he says, who has bewitched you, who has tricked you into believing something other than the gospel? Somebody's gotten you away from that. And again, I would confess, I thought it was the, the baby food. I know, you know, I, I discovered this, you know, you all, those of you all that are young parents, you like to feed your babies differently than we did. You do. You, you now teach them how to like to eat by themselves early on. And which takes out a lot of the fun, by the way, because Here's, here's when we would feed it. When we feed our boys when they were babies, uh, you had this Gerber stuff, and some of this stuff was nasty. All right, I remember peas were particularly grotesque. All right, but you gotta get the babies, so you would put this food in there and you put them like so it's an airplane, like na 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 na, and then you trick them because that's the way you disciple your kid. You trick them, and so you you put the spoon in there, and they don't know what it is because they're smiling, and if it's peas, they're like. <laughs> but if it's bananas, it's like bananas. It's awesome. It, but dad steals bananas sometimes. It's like, just joking. And those were, those were spot on. Those were good. And that's, but you think, okay, then they graduate up to other stuff. All that to say, that's the way some people, particularly, listen to me, particularly in the Bible Belt, particularly in the Southeast, particularly where you grow up going to church all the time. The belief is, you know what? That's the way we start. But then we move on to other stuff. And so here's what you gotta understand this Easter, is the gospel is not just the means by which you become a Christian, it is the motivation that motivates every single thing else you do as a Christian. The way you treat other people, the way it changes the way you view God, the way you relate to God. Instead of seeing him as a judgmental, harsh judge, you see him as a loving father. If you understand the gospel, you see yourself differently. You see, instead of looking at yourself as the label everybody puts on you, like you are your divorce or you are your abortion or you are your mistake or your good stuff, you are your money or you are your bank account or you are your resume. You're like, you know what? I'm who God says I am. I am who God has spoken over me. And man, you definitely see people differently if you understand the gospel. Because sometimes religious people can be the nastiest people around. Can I get a witness on that? Sometimes that's true. It's like, look, and here's the point. When you understand the gospel, you find it absolutely physically and spiritually impossible to look down your nose at somebody else while simultaneously looking up at Jesus on the cross. You can't do it, it's impossible. You've been humbled enough to know that that was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. Or as Paul's gonna say here at the end, he's gonna say, you know what? I am what I am by the grace of God, by the grace of God. And so kind of like we did in our uh, Friday, Good Friday service, and you guys have loved that. one of the things we got to understand is we need to take we got to spend a few minutes we got to spend some time over the brutality of the cross of christ before we can then rejoice over the glory of the empty tomb right so the apostle paul does that here's what he does in verse 3 for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received now again wouldn't that seem kind of juxtaposed against what you would think you got a jacked up church with marriages going down the toilet you got racial strife, you got all that stuff going on, you would think the first thing you would say would be go apologize to your wife or go get the... And what you don't understand is the the problems you have in your marriage, they are gospel problems. They are. Deep down, they are gospel problems. Guys, let me be blunt. The Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, but if you have not embraced what Christ has done for you, all it ends up is being a stalemate. Some of you had a fight coming to church today. And the question is, am I going to love her as Christ loved me? So he goes back to, it's not communication problems, it's not money problems, it's gospel problems. And so he says, this is the first thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and here's the phrase that I want you to understand, in accordance with the scriptures. One of the things that we are in this, we're in a journey called the year of the Bible. And right off the start, what we're showing is that, you know what, this whole book is about Jesus many people think just, you know, the God of the Old Testament is like the cranky God. And then the New Testament, you know, somewhere in the intertestamental period, he went to like, you know, Cal Berkeley or UNCA and he got really progressive. And now he's like the nice, gentle, super nice, easy Jesus in the New Testament. And yet the Bible is over and over and over again saying the whole thing's about Jesus. The whole book is about Jesus. And so he says this happened in accordance with the Scripture. So. You can't understand the gospel until you understand this phrase right here, that Christ died for our sins. But you it's not just for our sins and for us. You've got you to understand the idea of substitution, which means not just for you, but instead of you. You know how you get, you're able to sing and rejoice at the empty tomb? If you don't understand the darkness that he died instead of me, that when Jesus is on the cross, he is taking the justice of God on himself. And even if you grew up in church, you usually heard something like Jesus died for your sins. So what that means is I'm forgiven of my sins. What churches have not been good at teaching is, it's not just that you are forgiven of your sins, but if you are in Christ, he has then taken your resume of sin and then given you his resume of righteousness. All the stuff he did, resist temptation for 40 days. Heal people, do miracles. Be sinless. When you come to Christ, he not only forgives your past, he takes his resume and he puts it to your account. Theologians call this double imputation. It's I me mean, not just not just forgiveness, but righteousness is given to you. I mean that is amazing. Every illustration falls short. Every illustration I can think of falls short. But one that I read that uh, happened a long time ago, but it kind it gets the point across when it comes to double imputation, that is this, because um, I know a lot of you, and maybe some of you all, you know, we'll pray for you, but some of you all actually think uh, when it comes to the best basketball player of all time, some of you are like, you know, no question, you know, LeBron James. And, and just flat out, that is just not true. Okay, it's just not true. All right, we, uh, uh, by far the best basketball player is, uh, is Michael Jordan. So all that being said, I, I know Clayton King told y'all uh, it was... Um, LeBron and it's, and he's not going to speak here anymore because of that. So it's, it's Jordan. So here's the story. The story is, the story is, uh, back like in the nineties, Jordan scores one of the best games ever. He scored like 69 points against the Cavaliers or somebody I'm talking about amazing 23 or like 23 out of 27, 69 points. And they ended up winning in overtime, but down toward the clutch time, there was a rookie on his team named Stacy King played at OU. I think he was like just bricking, just bricking free throws. He ends up the game with one point. Jordan's got 69. Stacey King has one point, but the quote is what gets it. After the game, here's what Stacey King tells the reporters. Quote, I will always think of this night, or I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. It's like, yeah, that is one way to look at it. That's one way to look at it. Get on the coattails of Jordan. In a far superior way far far superior way the only thing we bring we don't even bring one point to the table the only thing we bring to salvation is our need for it the only thing we bring to the gospel is our sin we don't bring a point we don't bring 10 points we bring nothing but our sin and um, when it comes to the whole idea of, of it is finished, people think, you know, what does it is finished means? It is finished. When Jesus says it is finished, it is finished, it's, it's the word to die which means it's like they stamped it on bills, paid in full, paid in full. So when Jesus rises up on the cross and he says, it is finished, that means paid in full, paid in full. He talked about this, all, the Bible talked about it, pointed toward it. The book of Genesis, it says, there's coming a day where there's a guy that's gonna like crush the serpent. You move on a little bit further. He's like, I'm calling a guy named Abraham, but from Abraham's seed, there's gonna be a rescuer. Go a little bit further. He gives the 10 commandments as a map and a mirror. It's a mirror so that you and I can see that dude right there in the mirror. He's a sinner. She's a sinner. I've broken all of those laws. And then throughout the Old Testament, just these people like there's coming a rescuer, there's coming a rescuer, there's coming a rescuer. And then God goes silent for 400 years. And then Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, steps out. and goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the whole thing is about Jesus. And I love reminding you, when we said I'm gonna say it another 50 times until we can say it just by rote memory. I love reminding you that if you are in Christ through repentance and faith, if you're in Christ through repentance and faith, what Jesus did on the cross satisfied the holiness of God. A few weeks ago, we learned the word propitiation. It means satisfied. So check this out. If what Jesus did on the cross satisfied the wrath and judgment of a holy God, taking your sin on himself, if that satisfied a holy God and you're in Christ, that means he cannot be dissatisfied with you. Let that sink in. If you are in Christ and what Jesus did satisfied the judgment and the holiness of God, then he cannot be dissatisfied with you. And so he loves you, not the future version of you, not when you get your act together, not when you come to church 50 times in a row. He actually loves you. And um, again, by the way, and if you've never embraced Christ by faith, and maybe you came in, some of you came in here with a swagger. You came in here with a swagger. You came in here just like, man, I got my stuff together. And you know what? Nobody is so good they don't need the cross, all right? Nobody is so good that they don't need the cross. And yet many of you came in here with a limp, You just came limping in here and you don't know my story and you don't know where I've been and you don't know how rough a year it's been and you don't know what I did last night and you don't know what happened on spring break and all that stuff. All I say, you cannot outsend the cross. You can't outsend the cross. You're like, well, I think God forgives me. I'm not sure if I can forgive me. So what you're saying is your opinion means more than God's opinion. And so what I'm telling you is the cross was sufficient. What happened at the cross made provision for your sin. And when you and I embrace that, then we can go to the empty tomb and that's what verse four does. And he says this, that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So here's the deal. If the resurrection is true, it is game on for everything Christian. If the resurrection is not true, it's game over. Christianity was founded on an event. It was founded on a historical event. Look at the first four chapters of the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church. And there's not a whole bunch of classes on doctrine and this, that, and the other. It's all about an event It's all about people that say, you know what? I saw a guy and he was dead. And then I saw him walking around and I, and that can't, I just can't get that out of my mind. That changed the whole course of history. And as a matter of fact, if it's, if the resurrection is not true, you're wasting your time this morning. If the tomb is still occupied, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, I promise you, this is the worst hour and 15 minutes of your entire week. You've wasted it. Church is a terrible hobby. But if the tomb is empty, then nothing else really matters. Now, I do understand this, that we're not all there and we don't have, usually on Easter, I'll take 15 minutes and go through some proofs, evidences. We don't have time for that. I'm just gonna go through it like five minutes. But here's what I would say. If you're like, I'm not sure this stuff is real. I'm not sure I got, again, I got drug here. I lost a bet, whatever, the reason you're here. You're, you might go, well, I'm convinced. Well, you need to understand this because you know what? If you're convinced, you need to be an ambassador for Jesus. It has a decent answer when your coworker comes up. You need to have a better answer than God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. You need to have a better answer than that. That's a good enough answer for you. But if you're an ambassador, you need to be able to speak the language of the country in which God put you to be an ambassador in. So what's the evidence? If you're if, like, I'm, I'm a cynic, I'm not sure this is true. all I would say is at least be an honest doubter. God will go to great lengths to show himself to an honest doubter. An honest doubter is, I don't necessarily believe, but I'm willing to believe with some evidence. A dishonest doubter is, I don't care what you show me, I'm not going to believe because it goes against my, either my moral code or whatever. So let me just give you at least a few reasons why, I'm going to give you three real quick. Let me give you three reasons, and you see them right here in the text. That's all we do here. We just We just read the Bible and I just try to tell you here's what it's talking about and here's maybe the way to look at it in an illustration. That's what we do. We do every Sunday. Next week, how do we hear from God? We're just gonna look at a text and see how God spoke. So here's the question. Is there evidence? Is there evidence to believe in the empty tomb? So let me give you three that are here in the text. First one would be this, uh, the fact that the tomb was empty. Now listen to me. Nobody really argues that the tomb was empty. Most scholars, secular scholars, like something happened that day. Something happened that day and there was a tomb and they put Jesus in it. And then there was a point in time when he was no longer in the tomb. The question is, how did the tomb get empty? And so there's a bunch of different answers that people have kind of postulated through the years. Uh, One of them was that the, the enemies stole, the enemies of Jesus stole his body. But that really doesn't make sense because the enemies of Jesus, they owned the property, they owned the media, they owned the government. All they would have had to do to stop Christianity in its tracks was when the disciples were like, he rose from the grave, we saw him. Is to go into the tomb, drag out the dead body of Jesus, parade him through the streets. Christianity would have stopped in its tracks. But they didn't do that. There's another one that comes up about how did the tomb get empty? They called it the swoon theory. Now, believe it or not, this takes so much more faith than believing that God raised somebody from the dead. But the swoon theory basically says uh, Jesus, when he was on the cross, didn't really die. Even though the Romans were, they had perfected execution, he didn't really die. Uh, he, he was almost dead. Kind of sounds like the Prince's bride. He's like, I'm not quite dead. Um, and, and put him And they put him in the tomb and then they sealed it and then the dampness and the coldness of the tomb resuscitated Jesus. And then he somehow moved the, moved the stone away, got through the Roman soldiers, uh, went and told a few of his uh, disciples. And then as some of the folks say, then he headed off to France where he made a family with Mary Magdalene and lived until Tom Hanks broke the code a few years ago. And that's, that's kind of like, that's what happened. Um, that's hard to believe. That's hard to believe. Here, and there's another one. Um, this is awesome. Eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts. Look at how the text goes. Just kind of moving through the text. Verse five. And then he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Cephas is, is Peter. Which Wish we had time. Peter's a great Easter story. Filled with shame and just shame. Some of you are filled with shame at church this morning. You are. Shame is not the same as guilt, all right? Guilt is I feel bad about what I've done. Shame is you've never dealt with the guilt. And so what shame is, shame is I feel guilt is festered and become shame. And shame is, I don't feel bad about what I've done. I feel bad about who I am. So what you have done has become your identity, who you are. And that was Peter. Peter had been shamed. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Back then they they would read a scroll, this letter in front of a church. In that case it would be the church at Corinth. And what he's saying is, listen, You don't believe me? There are people that are still alive. You can go ask. They're still alive. This letter was written in about 50 AD, one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. It's like, you don't believe me? Go go talk to these guys that have seen him. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Actually, funny story. Uh, We'll get to in just a second. And then uh, to all the apostles. So the eyewitness accounts. Um, Let me go over a couple of these. Uh, Paul, again, named some people here that are still living. It's one of the cool things about, you know, just doing the Bible study. It's like, you know what? He is saying, go ask, go ask them. There is not one record. Listen to me, loved ones. All of the disciples died bad deaths. They died badly. They got martyred. They got thrown off roofs. All this kind of stuff. There is not one account, not even a secular account, of any of those disciples recanting that they had seen a resurrected Christ. Now listen, people die for lies all the time and people die for crazy stuff all the time. What people don't die for is a lie that they know is a lie. If they do it, they're like, I'm trying to get something. What did the disciples get? What did they preach? What was their message? Give away all your stuff, love those who persecute you and they never recant while they're being put to death for a lie? That doesn't make any sense at all no sense at all. And here's, uh, and some of you are like, well, uh, uh, they expected it to happen. They did not. Read the gospel sometime. There's nobody outside the tomb Easter Sunday morning. There's not anybody outside the tomb doing a countdown. Nobody's out there going 10, 9, 8, 7, cue the sun, 6, 5, 4. There's nobody doing that. He told them. He told them he was going to down a cross too. And they're like, yeah, that's not the way we have this whole thing pictured anyway. And then you get there, it's, uh, um, you look at, I mean, again, Peter's, Peter's pretty awesome because uh, Peter, just just to change lives, real quickly, Peter's a guy who, when Jesus is going through that kind of that kangaroo court, you know what happened? He's the one that denies Jesus um, three times to teenage girls that couldn't even have heard him. And then 60 days after that, after he'd seen the resurrected Christ, he's preaching and the religious leaders come and say, shut your mouth or we're gonna do to you what we did to your master. This is a guy that two months before had just trembled at the sight of teenage girls saying, are you with the, are you with the Galilean? And here we are 60 days later and he's like preaching and they're like, shut your mouth or we'll shut it for you. Just like we did Jesus. And here's what if Peter, Peter's like, listen, you guys gotta do what you gotta do but I cannot stop talking about what, and he says, what I have both heard and seen. And then he goes, you guys got all those degrees on the wall? Because these are like smart religious guys. You got all those degrees and you're magna cum laude. And listen, when it comes to picking between your magna cum laude and the guy that came up out of the grave, I'm going with the guy that came up out of the grave every time. And so... uh, Here's one real quick, funny. We can, we, can, we can talk about a bunch of them. There's people in this church. There's people in this church that are dramatically different than they were even just a year ago, much less three or four years ago. It's not just guys like Robert. We do stories like that all the time. There's people in this place, even just in this room, there's people in this place that five years ago were addicted to drugs, and now they're just clean as a whistle, they're healthy, they're whole, they're back with their families again. I mean, that's just the gospel. That's just what the gospel's done. There's people in here who've gotten remarried after leaving. There's people who've entered here who've had a. Fair, all, you don't know. Everybody thinks church is just a place where everybody comes in and puts on a plastic smile. Man, all we are, we are a bunch of broken people. The commonality is we have found grace in the gospel of Jesus. That's the commonality. But the one that cracks me up, did you notice there was a little guy, a phrase in there that said, in James? Now, hold on. This is Bruce, not Bible, okay? Bible, Bruce. James, we don't know exactly which James he's referring to. You're not sure. So I can't be like bulldogmatic about this. There's several Jameses in the New Testament. One of the Jameses was Jesus's half brother, all right? And so um, we know that Jesus's half brother early on didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus early on. But then later on, when he sees Jesus raised from the dead, All of a sudden, he's not just a follower. He gets martyred for his faith as well as writing the letter called James in the Bible. So question on the floor. Okay, how many of y'all, first of all, how many of y'all have a big brother? Raise your hand if you have a big brother. A lot of y'all. Okay, question. What would it take for your big brother to convince you that he was the sinless son of almighty God? What would it take you? You're like... Maybe the spawn of Satan, but not the sinless, not the sinless Son of God. And yet, here's James, more evidence. You know what? A life that was changed radically different. And here's, uh, let me give you this last one. This is the coolest one. And my, one of the things about being a preacher's wife is you get to hear bits and pieces of the sermon as it comes together during the week. And I kept saying this to her, and she's like, save some for church, save some for church. So I'm gonna do this like three minutes. So you're gonna, I'm gonna talk fast, you gotta listen fast, all right? Okay, when, it comes to, when it comes to fulfilled prophecy, there's like 300 fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled in the New Testament. Where he was born, uh, what his family line was going to be. Um, then you got places like Isaiah 53 that are like, you know what, uh, by his sins we were healed. It talks about, it talks about you know, even the crucifixion. It talks about the betrayal. you got all that stuff. But the one that just blows my mind, and don't turn to it, right? Don't turn to it. Look at it later jot down in your notes or in your phone or whatever to just look at Psalm 22 sometime. Okay, check it out, Psalm 22. When Jesus is on the cross in the New Testament, because Psalm 22 is written a thousand years before Jesus dies on a cross. You get me? All right, you get me? A thousand years before, Psalm 22 is written. Psalm 22 verse one starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A thousand years later in Matthew 27, Jesus is on the cross and he's like, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is called a rabbinical remez. And some of y'all just need to, you're like, what is it? Rabbinical remez is what Jesus is actually doing right there. A rabbinical, the word remes means hint. Now we don't use that kind of language now, but I'll give you an example. If I say, uh, I was going to sing a couple of songs, but I think it's probably a bad idea. But if I say, uh, if I say God bless America, land that I, that's a remiss. I'm starting it for you and you're finishing it. If I say, and man, this is hard to say because I'm going I'm to hit, I'm going to butcher this. But if I say, uh, sweet Caroline,
1: you guys are so
0: lost. I mean, I can't believe you all. Just kidding. That is, that's a remiss. You know, I started and then you finish it. Keep in mind that all the Jewish people that were around the cross, now there was obviously other people besides the Jewish people, but Jewish children went to the school, the Hebrew school, and they would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the Psalms. And they would have these memorized and so of the at least the Jews around the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why has they have forsaken me? Their minds would have immediately gone back to Psalm 22. And what he's doing, he's preaching the gospel that the God of Psalm 22, the God of the Old Testament is now hanging his son on a cross and just go down the psalm. You go down to about verse six and seven and Psalm 22 says this. It says, they mocked him and made fun of him. And they said, I'll just read it to you. Here's what what they say in this. They go, uh, all who see me mock me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Psalm Matthew 27, so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe. Can you imagine if you're like a Jewish person there and you know Psalm 22 that Jesus started with my God, my God, why has I forsaken me? And then you see people mocking him and casting lots for his clothes. And it's like, oh my God, that's, that's, that's Psalm 22 on the cross right there. And if you don't think that's enough, the last verse, oh, by the way, even like in about verse 16 of Psalm 22, years before, it says, they would pierce my hands and feet. You wanna, you wanna get your mind blown? Psalm 22 is written 500 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. So 500 years before crucifixion is invented, Psalm 22 says, they have pierced my hands, they have pierced my feet. And then check it out, last verse in Psalm 22. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Who does that include? A people yet unborn, they're gonna proclaim his righteousness. That's what we're doing ex- right now. To a people yet unborn. What are you gonna say? What are you gonna say? Here's the way the Psalm ends. That he, gosh, this, that he has done it. That he has done it which translated in the New Testament means it is finished. It's finished, paid in full. Nothing more you can add to it. And when you and I remember the gospel, remember our sin has been paid for, remember it cost a lot, but that reminds you the enemy doesn't get to tell you who you are anymore. You are not your addiction, you are not your habits, they don't define you. Your guilt, your shame got put on Jesus on the cross. And if you're sitting there going, man, I want a part of that deal. And it comes through repentance and faith. It's like, you know what? Repentance means I'm not the boss of me anymore. You're the boss of me. Repentance means, you know what? Uh, you take the reins and I'm letting go of the reins. Here's the problem in the Bible Belt. Here's the problem in the Southeast. Here's the problem that some of you actually grew up religious and you've actually never trusted Christ. You've never repented. You believed. You believed, but you never believed. Pistuo, you never believed in him. You never sat down and put your weight on him. You're like I prayed a prayer, I went to student camp, I did whatever. If there was not some type of life change, then all you did is get wet, or you prayed some prayer, or you went to some camp, and I'm glad that you did. But the Bible says repentance and faith is how that goes. And the good news is, listen, he said it is finished. He didn't say he is finished. (laughs) That's the it is finished, not he is finished. And it also means He's not finished with you. Your alarm clock and the empty tomb are empirical evidence this morning that God's not finished with you. So that wherever you are, wherever you are, God wants you to remember the gospel. And then you're like, what do I do? I I know Christ. What am I supposed to do? Very briefly, like in three minutes, here's what it is. Look at the last few verses. And this is how we're going to end. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the Apostle Paul. See how humble he is? It's not the way he's always been. He actually was a very prideful, angry, destructive person. But just look how he changed. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Now, if you're new to Bible study, just realize that's not hyperbole. He did. His whole story is, you know what? He would drag Christians out of their families' homes and drag them and arrest them because he felt like, you know what? That's going against my religion. And then God saved him and here's how he ends it. This ought to be like the moniker we have every single day we walk out the door. Every day we go to school. Every day we go into the office. Every day we drive through the neighborhood. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But check out this last part. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Let me briefly give you this last little snippet. After you remember the gospel or you respond to the gospel, the rest of your life, the rest of my life, some of you are gonna live to 40, some of you are gonna live to 50, some of you are gonna live to 20, some of you are gonna live to 100 years old. Once it becomes part of your life, here's, here's what the agenda is, is that you would simply reflect the gospel. We believe the gospel and then we become like the gospel. We believe the gospel, and as we go deeper and deeper into the gospel, we become like the gospel. We are generous because God was generous with us. We forgive people because God forgave us. We are humble because why? Because it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. We are confident and don't have to be like a chameleon and change what we act like. If we're at the country club versus church, we can act the same. Why? Because, you know, there's confidence. I was so bad, Jesus had to die for me, but I, I'm so loved, he chose to die for me. That gives you confidence. And so when we reflect the gospel, it just means, you know what, I'm starting to look a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more like the one who saved me. Now, just I'll close with this thought. Can you imagine if the church does that? Now, God's been very gracious to our church, not just through this hellacious last year, but I mean, just the last decade, God has been so gracious to our church in a hundred different ways. But here's what we got. Can you imagine, I don't believe this has happened yet. Can you imagine if the love we had for the communities in which we're in was so overwhelming, so amazing, so noticeable, so tangible that people who don't believe anything like what we believe that think this whole thing is a once upon a time way back fairy tale, but the way that we love them and ministered to them and were generous to them demonstrated the gospel in such a way one of them's got to go run into Miss Mayer's office and go, you know what? I don't know what those crazy people down there at Biltmore Church are doing, but you know what? We don't have to do this government program because they already adopted this school. We don't have to hook up certain things in the detention center. Why? Because the church is already there. And there's going to be a day when that happens because it's already happened. Way back in the fourth century, there's an emperor named Julian to quote him. How can we stop the growth of these wretched Galileans? Talking about Christians. They take care not only of their own poor, but ours as well. Those kind of things, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not you and I going out and being kind and nice. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the substitutionary death of Jesus, the victorious resurrection of Jesus, and then we repent and embrace him by faith, okay? The gospel is what God has done, but the demonstration of it Happens in the way you treat your spouse on the way out. Happens on the way you parent and disciple your kids. It happens on the way that you treat the people who work for you or you work with. It happens with the way you interact with your teammates. It happens with the integrity you show in school. It happens, all those things. Why? Because we believe the gospel and then we become the gospel. We we remind ourselves of the gospel and then we reflect the gospel. So here's the deal. I not you to bow your heads for a second. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Please don't get up and leave. Uh, and, dis- and disturb people, we're almost done. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, has there been a time, has there been a demarcation point? You're like, I just, I, you know, I've always been a Christian, that is impossible. Nobody's always a Christian. Until you're redeemed, redeemed by what Jesus did on the cross through repentance and faith. Repentance saying, I'm not the boss of me. Here are the reins of my life. And belief is, you know what? I'm not a mistaker in need of a life coach, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And you're him. And God, somehow, when you pushed up on those nail-pierced feet and you said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing, that you had me in mind, you thought of me, that was my sin. And somehow, some way, when he says, Father, forgive them, that counted for me. If that hadn't happened in your life, right where you're sitting, just right where you're sitting, there, God, I'm not the boss of me anymore. And I need a savior. And I'm here on Easter morning. God, I'm just asking you to save me. Let me reflect your good gospel the rest of my days. But right now, just save me right where I sit. Forgive my sin. Give me your righteousness like you said, like that preacher up there said you would. Just tell them in your own words right now.